welcome to Saga Thing, where we're still putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm still John. And I'm still Andy. Uh, why are we saying still? Well, because we're not done with the saga we started last time. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, this is our second part of our summary of Vatensdala Saga. Yeah. Um, as people will know if they've already listened to part one, and I don't know why you'd start with part two, we decided to split our discussion of Vatensdala into two parts. There's just too much to talk about. And mm-hmm. besides, Vatensdala is one of those sagas that connects so many other sagas together that we'd hate to miss out on something important. Uh, that said, we will miss out on many things important. Well... <laughs> Um, well, let's start our first digression. <laughs> I think it's important to note that, uh, we're recording right after the annual Medieval Studies Conference at Kalamazoo. Uh, and as always, we had a, a great time at this conference. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, the conference we're talking about is the International Congress on Medieval Studies. It's, uh, it's held in Kalamazoo, Michigan every, every May for some reason. And it gets about 3,000 medievalists together from all over the world to present research, spend too much money on books, and mm. indulge in the occasional small bit of convivial drinking. Yeah, uh, a very small bit of drinking. All right, all right. <laughs> but it's mostly about the smart stuff. And I always come away from the conference re-energized and a little awed by the work that my colleagues are doing. Yeah, me too. I want to go write about like five different books after Kalamazoo each year. Um, but I got to say, I'm also quite worn out by the pace of it. Mm-hmm. Four days of early mornings, late, late nights, and virtually no time for rest, especially if you stay in the dorms. Yeah. Now, I'm, we're recording this on Friday morning, um, mm-hmm. nearly five days after the conference, and I still feel like I'm recovering a little. But mm-hmm. it's all worth it. And we got to catch up with a lot of friends and meet a few podcast listeners. Uh, hello yeah. again to those of you who we met over the course of the weekend. Did uh, you just wave? I did. I did wave, just in case. It's, uh, it's just a podcast. <laughs> they can't see that. Uh, I've got small children. I'm used to waving when I say hello. Uh, <laughs> and in addition, we uh, we actually hosted a panel on history and the Icelandic sagas. Yeah, it was a great panel. Mm-hmm. Uh, unfortunately, all of that activity meant that we somehow didn't find time to sit down together and record an episode of Saga Thing like we meant to do. Right. Um, so we're a little bit later on this one than we hoped, um, but I think we're in agreement that Next year, we need to find a way to make a the podcast recording a little bit more formal, um, make it part of the conference if we can. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Uh, but that's a long way off. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that we've established the wonder of Kalamazoo, uh, why don't we get started before this becomes a three-part summary? <laughs> All right. Let me just hit this button here. In this episode, we follow the descendants of Ingerman through three more generations. First, the sons of Ingerman and their quest for vengeance against Rolief the Tall. That doesn't actually take as much time as you might think, and soon we're swept away by the sons of Ingerman and their efforts to maintain peace in an increasingly dangerous region. Along the way, you'll meet such diverse characters as Thorstein Ingemunderson and his giant brother, Jokul, and their reluctant berserker brother, Thorir Gothai. Join them as they try to defeat their rivals. Too many to be named here, but look out for Finn Bogey and Berg the Bold. In the next generation, you'll meet Ingolf the Handsome, son of Thorstein, who captures the lady's hearts, and more than his fair share of honor. Listen as Ingolf takes on 15 outlaws single-handedly. Does he have what it takes to survive such terrible odds? And in the last generation, follow Thorkel Scratcher, the abandoned child, as he attempts to get the attention of his neglectful father, gain the respect of the men of Vatensdal, goes on adventures overseas, and eventually win the Goldorth of Vatensdal for himself. Will these men live up to the legacy left them by Ingemund the Old, or will they screw it all up and make us long for the golden age of yesterday? Find out as Saga Thing covers Vatensdal Saga, the next generation. 
right. So, Vatan's Dalla Saga covers six generations in a family who become known for holding the Godorth, or chieftaincy, of the Vatansdal region in the north of Iceland. The last time we covered the first three generations of the family, Ketel the Large, not really an important generation, Aww. Ketel's son Thorstein, the average-sized, and Thorstein's well, son... Well, the average-sized uh, is, not, is not really a nickname. Uh, we should be clear. No. Uh, no. But Thorstein is definitely less physically impressive than his father or his son. Well, that's what I was trying to get at. On the other hand, he turned out to be more or less a folktale hero figure, complete with a giant killing scene. So we shouldn't sell him short. Sadly, no one ever goes around calling him uh, Thorstein Giant Killer. Well, uh, he does marry the giant's sister. People might think it was a little impolitic to mention that in front of her. (laughs) That would kind of upset her. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, the third generation was Thorstein's son, Ingmund. Mm -hmm. He's the guy who moves from Norway to Iceland and establishes the family's homestead at Vatnsdal. Yeah, against his will, actually. Oh, yes, very much against his will. Uh, but he does make a success of the move and ends up as chieftain of Fottensdal and has a whole bunch of kids with his wife, Vigdis. Yeah, and he keeps busy. Uh, Ingeman builds a reputation as a reasonable and easygoing man, despite his past as a Viking raider. And he's well-liked by his neighbors in Iceland. Yeah, if it weren't for the whole uh, cheating a house guest out of a sword, Adertongi, he'd probably be too good to be true. He's amazing. Well, okay, we should, we should revise that last part slightly. Ingeman is popular with nearly all his neighbors. Right. Uh, he's not so popular with the local troublemaker, Hrolif the Tall, or Hrolif's mother, Jot the Witch. And mm-hmm. when Ingeman tries to intercede in a confrontation between his sons and Hrolif, he gets a spear in his guts for his trouble, and he dies shortly afterward. Which I assume means that there are going to be some Ingemundersons looking for a little revenge. Oh, yes. And that's where we pick up this episode. Generation 4, the children of Ingeman, Thorstein, Jokul, Hogni, Thorir, Smid. Thordis and Jorun. Oh, get it, would you, Deidre? That's, that's a lot of people. <laughs> it really is. Probably that's our longest uh, subtitle <laughs> ever. Now, before we get to the revenge, we should briefly go over all these people. Mm-hmm. It can be a little confusing, although, uh, as we said in the, the quick summary, there's only a couple of them that are terribly important. Mm-hmm. But. The earlier generations were easy last episode. Uh, we only had one son to keep track of at any given time. But uh, as you can tell from that little subtitle there, mm-hmm. Ingman and Vigdis are a quite fertile pairing. Uh, okay, so let's do this in turns. Uh, so Thorstein is the oldest son. He's named mm-hmm. for his grandfather. And at his birth, he's said to have a thoughtful look in his eye. Thorstein is the leader of the brothers. He's handsome, loyal, intelligent, clever, and moderate in his habits. He's also said to be farsighted, and he occasionally has hints of being able to see the future. Great Thingman material. Mm -hmm. Quite handy. Uh, The second son is named Jokul, after his uh, great-uncle, the Half-Giant. Right, so as you mentioned last time, the name actually does get used in the family again. Mm -hmm. Yes, and remember, one of the conditions of the first Jokul letting the first Thorstein go was that one of his descendants should be named for him. Mm -hmm. Now, Jokul, the second, is described at birth as being hefty and sharp-eyed. Uh, unlike Gris from uh, Halford's <laughs> Trollsome Poet Saga. Uh, Ingeman predicts, alone. <laughs> predicts that this son will be no great shakes at controlling his temper, uh, but he will be a loyal friend and brother and a great warrior, and he grows up to be quite brave, in fact. Quiet, tough-minded, difficult to manage, and huge. That's, uh, that's quite a combination. Yeah. Uh, the third son is Thorir Goatthai, <laughs> and he's named for his mother's father, Earl Thorir the Silent. And a goat's uh, thigh. Right. <laughs> and, and the thigh of a, of a local goat. Um, Thor is a good-looking man of above-average height and strength. He's got a sharp mind and the manner of a merchant, which is usually not a compliment. Uh, yeah, he's also say. got a secret that we'll learn about later. 
And the fourth son is named Hogni. Now, I'm not sure why he's named Hogni, but they had to name him something, I guess. <laughs> now, Hogni is average in appearance, and he's the only one with a real travel bug. So he's going to grow up and inherit the ship Stigandi and become a trader and Viking for a short time. Mm-hmm. Now, the fifth and last son is a bit of a family scandal. His name is Smid, Ooh. and he's Ingemann's son with a different woman. Oh, scandal. Uh, this sort of thing goes on in the sagas fairly routinely, but it can still create a great deal of awkwardness within a family. Smith isn't really accepted as one of the sons by Vigdis, but the brothers treat him as one of their own. Um, to be honest, though, I uh, I don't really remember Smith at all in the saga. <laughs> He's <laughs> so around at the edges. You, it's funny that you mention him. Um, but honestly, as you will see later in the saga, there are families where illegitimate children aren't treated nearly that well by their birth father's family. Yep. Um, I should also mention there are two daughters, Thordis and Joron, who will later have good marriages and whose families will be important uh, somewhat later in the saga. Right. Now, if your head's spinning with all this, don't worry. Uh, Vatnsdala is one of those sagas that can get a little twisted around, even for experienced readers. Yeah. Uh, if it helps any, try a mnemonic. To jump too high, start to jump. What? What is to that? To jump too high, start to jump. Thorstein, Yokel, Thor, Hogni, Smid, Thordis, Joron. <sighs> that is... <laughs> That's supposed to be a memory device? Yeah. It's awful. Well, you probably won't forget it. Oh, I'll certainly try. <laughs> but even if I don't forget that, I don't know where it would possibly come in handy. I don't know what, where would I use this information. I offer it for you to use as you will. <laughs> All right. I've already forgotten it. So, so we left off with the sons confronting uh, their father's death. Right. Now, Yokel is enraged, which is sort of his default state of being. Mm-hmm. He he wants to rush off and kill Hraleif immediately. And he has to be held down by the others while Thorstein figures out that Raleigh has escaped. Now, these two really are a study in contrast. They are, but I think one of the author's real strengths is in portraying this sibling relationship. All yeah. the brothers' interactions are really believable as the actions of brothers. They very much feel mm-hmm. like brothers who accept one another's personalities and find a way to work together anyway. Yeah, this scene actually reminds me of the one from the Ragnar saga where the Ragnarsons learn about their father's death. Yeah, in many ways it is kind of similar. Uh, we don't get as much detail about the other brothers, um, but we sort of see the difference in Jokel and Thorstein's responses uh, in the same way that we saw the Ragnarsons all kind of learning to control themselves in different ways. Right, exactly. Now, the uh, Ingemundersons, they can't find Froleif, but we know that he has escaped and he is now in hiding. Mm-hmm. It turns out that he's gone back to his kinsmen um, and he's uh, he's hiding in a shed on the property of Germund, the son of Ingemund's old Viking friend, Seymund. Mm-hmm. Now, Germund never liked Froleif and mm-hmm. he certainly doesn't want Froleif there right now, but he does feel obligated by their family ties. Right. Uh, these two are first cousins. Their fathers were brothers. So Germund's in a tough spot as a result of that. He likes the Ingemundersons, and he wants Froleif punished, but the demands of kinship make it difficult for him to do anything but support Froleif here. Right. So in the spring, the five brothers ride north to look for Froleif. Uh, they visit Germund's place, obviously, since family homes are often a good place to look for fugitives. And Thorstein takes Germund aside for a private chat while his brothers play board games. Oh, board games. Yeah, we should yeah. do a, a saga brief on entertainment and games in the sagas. Yeah. I think there's a, a lot of good information out there on games like uh, Naftefel and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you remember, this is actually one, another one of those similarities. The Ragnarsons, two of the Ragnarsons were playing a board game when they learned of their father's death. Oh, great point. Yeah. Right? Um, we really should do one of those. Um, in the meantime, uh, Thorstein sort of combines friendly advice, threats, and a flat-out bribe to overcome Gearman's resistance and even promises to give Hraleif a head start so that Giermund won't be implicated in his death and won't be seen as a traitor to his family. Uh, Giermund agrees and tells Hraleif to run while Thorstein waits with his brothers. 
and he doesn't tell the others until the next day that Rawleaf had been at the farm. And, of course, the others then are a little bit annoyed with him. Right, but the chase is on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and as they're leaving the farm, Yokel and Thorstein continue bickering like brothers, with Yokel calling Thorstein feeble and slow, and Thorstein's calling Yokel witless. Yeah, I, I love the I love the relationship between these guys. Yeah, uh, the brothers rush to the farm of Yot Hraliv's mother, since they guess that's where he's headed. Um, they know that Yot's magic will protect their protect her son unless they can catch him unawares, and so Thorstein plans to hide above the roof of the house and signal his brothers when Hraliv comes outside. Right, but Yokel wants a hand in the plan as well <laughs> and he he insists on being the lookout so he's hiding himself in a pile of firewood by the door thorstein doesn't like that since he doesn't trust yokel not to screw it up or rush into the house by himself but he does give in and let his brother take the job and we should say that he is right uh, thorstein like we said <laughs> yeah. has these flashes of seeing the future but he doesn't really need it for this uh, no, yokel's definitely not the guy you want in charge of a surveillance job uh, but in fairness yokel only <laughs> partly screws up <laughs> <laughs> When Roleaf exits the house, Yokel jumps up and the log pile just collapses under his feet, which spills him onto the ground. He does manage to throw a stick to signal his brothers, and then he jumps on Roleaf so that he can't get away. Now, we, we did mention earlier that Roleaf is nicknamed the Tall, mm-hmm. but this is where we really get a sense of how big he is. Even Yokel, who's got giant blood and is the largest of all his brothers, is barely his size, and mm-hmm. the two of them are rolling around in a wrestling match when the others arrive to break it up. Right now, and they're not the only ones who come running. Hraleif's mother, Yot the Witch, hears the commotion and rushes over as well. Mm-hmm. Hogni spots her first and shouts out in shock, What monster is this coming toward us? Well, to be fair, he, he's got a good reason to be a little confused. <laughs> yes, he does. Um, Yot has thrown her clothes up and is walking toward them backwards with her head sticking out from between her legs. Uh, her eyes are bulging and look like a troll's. Overall, it's, it's, well, it's, it's a little ridiculous is what it is, but it's also okay. frightening. Right, especially if she forgot to wear her underwear that morning. Oh, <laughs> This kind of body contortion is a hallmark of witchcraft in the sagas. Uh, and this one is just so bizarre. Mm-hmm. The idea seems to be that she was in the middle of a powerful spell designed to protect her son or something. Uh, but the brothers spotted her just in time. Right, so now she's so you're saying she's stuck in mid-contortion and waddling her way toward them. That seems to be the case. Uh-huh. Uh, uh <laughs> But uh, since her spell was interrupted, the sons of Ingemund now have no reason to fear her. Right, and Thorstein now urges Yokel to kill Hraleif while they have a chance. Right. Yokel says that he's quite ready for it, and lops off Hraleif's head. There's really not much more to it than that. No. Uh, but Lyot's death is, is actually pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. She complains that the luck of the Ingemundersons kept her from getting her vengeance. The plan, she says, was to cast a spell that would have changed the landscape and driven the Ingemundersons crazy with fear. Hmm. But she says she couldn't finish the spell because they spotted her before she uh, got done. Mm-hmm. She's clearly frustrated by all of this. And the saga says, then Lyot the witch died in her rage and sorcery. That is a hell of a way to go. Apoplectic with rage and with your head stuck behind your butt. <laughs> well, I don't know if her head is still stuck there, but it's well. an interesting image all the same. Uh, I'm also not sure that she just explodes in a fit of rage. I always imagined when I read this that Thorstein simply killed her. Mm-hmm. But you're right. The saga doesn't explicitly state that. It just says that she died in her rage and sorcery. Mm-hmm. It, it's interesting death all the same. Yeah. Now, even if you're not a fan of the saga heroes, there's plenty of evil witches around to keep us entertained in this one. There's actually There are a lot of them here. Uh, actually, uh, your Glosser signals out Vatnsdala Saga as a prime example of a saga that undertakes – uh, what he says is the exclusion and eradication of the magical and the female from the cultural record. So ridiculing a witch is part of the saga author's agenda to 
undermine feminine power. Is that right? Uh, possibly. Uh, the idea isn't really developed very far in Glauss's article, but it's not hard to construct a reading for many sagas where that's the case. No. But the brothers have their revenge, and with that out of the way, they can finally conduct negotiations with one another over their father's inheritance. Right. Now, Thorstein takes charge of the sharing out as the oldest brother. Uh, he awards the family farm to himself, the sword Atertangi to Jokul, the ship Stegandi to Hogni, and the family's uh, Gothorth, or chieftaincy, to Thorir. So everyone's happy, more or less. Well, not everyone. Uh, what about old Smid, the, the, the fifth and illegitimate son? What's he yeah, well, like? that's a little awkward. Um, as an illegitimate son, Smith doesn't understand to inherit anything, and none of the other brothers seem to think there's anything unjust about that. No, but Smith doesn't say anything. He establishes a farm of his own and slowly reduces his contact with the others, to the extent that he's rarely seen in the saga from here on out. Like I said, he's, he's uh, an afterthought. Um, but before that happens, the brothers all gather again to take care of another problem in their district. Thorolf Sledgehammer. Right. A lone bandit who lives with 20 huge black cats. You know what's weird about Thorolf Sledgehammer? They, when they introduce him, they say... He has an awesome nickname. Yeah. But they say, the, the saga author says, uh, we talked about him earlier. Yeah, no, they did. It's, he wasn't called Thorolf Sledgehammer. He's just Thorolf. Uh, well, earlier there's a guy named Thorolf Darkskin, but he's not the same Thorolf. No, that's, that's a different guy. There's another Thorolf who's briefly mentioned like once, but they don't call him Sledgehammer. You think that's the guy? And they don't mention that he's a witch who has 20 black cats. Yeah, you think you'd mention that the first time. Yeah, you think that would come up. He does have an awesome nickname. Uh, This section of Mm -hmm. the saga actually turns into a kind of serial action story with the brothers teaming up to take on one threat after another. Um, It can get a little repetitive, but the stories themselves are entertaining enough uh, that I don't mind these episodes. Yeah, I mean, Thorolf's probably the most interesting one. I mean, he's got 20 demonic pumas hanging around his pumas. place. They're just cats. Well, big cats. Big cats. Sure they are. Uh, th- I mean, little look, there are no large cats in Iceland, so it's they're less likely to be pumas as anything else. Uh, Jesse Bayok talks briefly about this sequence, mm-hmm. and he makes the point that Thorolf is a sorcerer. And apparently the association of witches with black cats goes back a long way. So he's a crazy cat lady, but he's also a guy named Thorolf Sledgehammer. Yeah, so. <laughs> well, I guess I just, for me, the name and the description, they're a little bit at odds. Well, okay, we'll deal with the nickname in our judgments, but as far as the cats go, I mean, these are giant cats. They're not furry little kitties. Sure, sure. Right? It's not, it's not clear where he got them from or whether we're meant to understand them to be supernatural in origin, but their presence suggests that Thorolf's got some magical I skills. I hope he's got magical skills to uh, clean up the litter and, uh, <laughs> get rid of the- Presumably he's got a little homunculus that takes care of the smell in his house. Uh, so by this time, uh, the brothers are developing a bit of a specialization in getting rid of supernatural villains. Yeah, but to deal with Thorolf Sledgehammer and his amazing jungle cats, as I guess you're trying to make them out to be, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I see them as house cats. Uh, they're, well, they're going to need no, they're giant. Sure, they are. They're going <laughs> to they're going to need some help. Uh, so they gather a dozen other Icelanders to take on the twenty cats, and Thorstein brings along a Norwegian companion. That's all he's called, a Norwegian companion? Yeah, you know how, what that means. <laughs> Poor guy's doomed. Well, he is. <laughs> now, uh, for those who aren't familiar with this literature, there's a trope of Norwegian men getting killed during these raids. It's a, it's a red shirt situation. Yeah, not the sports kind of red shirt, the bad Star Trek kind. Right. <laughs> Whenever a saga tells you that Thorstein Ingemundersen, Yokel the Giant, Thorir Goatthai, and a Norwegian friend are going to attack a sorcerer, you can be pretty sure there's going to be a sad telegram sent to a mother in Norway very soon. <laughs> Now, in this case, the brothers set fire to Thorolf's home when he refuses to come out um, while staying well clear of the cats. The cats flee when Yokel throws burning sticks at them, 
and Thorstein positions the crew so that Thorolf can't escape. Thorolf finally bursts out of the burning house holding his chests of stolen silver and he runs toward the Norwegian follower. Uh oh. The Norwegian chases after Thorolf down to a deep mire near the river, but Thorolf grabs him and dives into the mire and both men are drowned. <sighs> Dear Norwegian Companion's mother, we regret to inform you that your son, Norwegian Companion, was lost in action. <laughs> That's pretty much how it goes, actually. Thorstein <laughs> says, well, this turned out badly since my Norwegian companion has perished. But Thorolf's wealth will serve as a compensation for him. And I have to say that's actually a better deal than most Norwegian followers oh, seem to get. I mean, at least somebody acknowledges his death. So uh, now we're going to have to skip a few of the brothers' adventures in order to get through the entire saga. Uh, but I really encourage everyone to read this saga in its entirety. There's so much great detail that we just don't have time for it all. Absolutely. Uh, we're just going to touch on the highlights here. So... On one occasion, the Ingemundersons are forced to deal with a pair of sister witches, but when they really do specialize in supernatural yeah. villains. Uh, when one of the witches tries to use magic against Thorstein, the brother's family fetch appears in a dream and warns him to stay home on a certain day. And this is one of those moments when we see that Thorstein is the primary inheritor of the family's preternatural luck. Right. Normally, a fetch only appears to a man who's about to die, but Thorstein serves as more of a guardian angel. That combined with mm -hmm. his occasional glimpses of the future make him pretty formidable. Definitely. And Thorstein knows better than to defy his luck, so he stays home as ordered. Mm -hmm. uh, the magic doesn't have a focus and rebounds on the witch, and her entire household is wiped out in an avalanche. Yeah, you've got to watch the recoil when you're shooting magic. It's a very sure. dangerous thing. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't give us a number of people in that house. Uh, could have no, her body no. Count. So just yeah, just her. Anyway, on another occasion, the brothers end up in a grazing dispute with their neighboring cousin Mar of Masti. There. Now we've seen Mar in other sagas. Uh, in later life, he's a crony of my Thingman Snorri Gothi. Your Thingman Snorri Gothi. Uh, he's right. also, uh, I think he's in Halford's saga. Yeah, he appears here and there. Yeah, anyway, in this episode, he's in an argument with the Ingemundersons, which doesn't usually end well for anyone else. Uh, the dispute escalates almost accidentally, and in the final confrontation, a large brawl breaks out. Yeah, I mean, we're really skipping over this feud in order to spend more time on other great stuff in the saga, but we can't ignore that there are actual consequences to the fighting. Mm -hmm. In a tragic turn of events, Hogni Ingemundersen is killed in the battle, oh. along with two of Mar's cousins. Alas, poor Hogni. But mm. in better news, we get to see Yokel going into a berserk frenzy over uh, Hogni's death. And in the fighting, mm -hmm. he maims Hromund, the son of Avon the Proud. Hromund gets the nickname Hromund the Lame from his permanent foot injury. Um, it's a shame to lose Hogni, but on the other hand, we get the image of Yokel contemplating his sword Atertungi and how much he'd like to test its edge against Mars' followers next. So I guess that's yes. something. Well, Yokel definitely has the first Yokel's genes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and the text has been hinting about a berserk in the family, so his rage isn't a total surprise. No, but there is a berserk surprise coming. Uh, hang on mm -hmm. to that, hang on to that. Um, in, a, in another, what I guess you'd call police action, uh, Thorstein, Jokel, and Thorir have to round up a posse and break the power of a criminal named Thorolf Darkskin and his band of outlaws. This is the Thorolf we were yes, talking about before. Right. Uh, Jokel takes charge of the assault on Darkskin's stronghold and kills four men. And there's kind of a pathetic moment when Jokel chases Thorolf Darkskin into a swamp. When he realizes that he's trapped, Darkskin sits down on the ground and cries. <laughs> it's a classic saga moment. <laughs> Jokel's response to Darkskin crying is to tell him that he has no honor, and then he kills him. Right. <laughs> I suppose somebody unfamiliar with the sagas would expect an act of mercy there. Yeah. 
But uh, Yokel's just not that kind of guy. Well, to be fair, uh, uh, Thorolf Darkskin is a uh, – he does sacrifices and all kinds right. of terrible things. Right. No, there's no there's no reason to show no. mercy. But, you know, it's the it's a, a familiar trope mm-hmm. that you can't kill an unarmed man who's crying and begging for his you life. You can if you're Yokel. Yo- Yokel has not read those books uh, or indeed any <laughs> others. Uh, meanwhile, uh, during that raid, we also learned that Yokel is not the only berserk in the family. Yeah, it turns out that Thorir Goatthai, the quiet merchant brother – He's also a berserk. But unlike Yokel, who's essentially a professional tough guy, Thorir's reputation as a level-headed businessman is threatened by the news that he might go into rages of uncontrollable fury. Which is pretty much exactly why Bruce Banner would make a lousy Wall Street trader. <laughs> okay. it's <laughs> an interesting point. Bad joke. Um, but Thorir's revelation will become uh, much more important later in the saga. Uh, for now, we've got to get on to possibly the greatest of the brothers' feuds. It's time to meet Finn Bogey the Mighty. Oh, good. Yes, I would, this is my favorite episode as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of those extended cameos that we see in some sagas. Finn Bogey actually has his own saga, which we'll be covering soon. But in this saga, he shows up as an antagonist, along with his flamboyant nephew, Berg the Bold. We actually meet Berg first in what I think is one of the great introductions in all saga literature. Uh, Thorstein's workers are out in the field one day when they see a group of riders grazing their horses in Thorstein's meadow. And that's already a breach of etiquette. Uh, the leader, Berg, then ostentatiously cuts a wide strip from the bottom of his cloak and says loudly that it's too dirty to wear before tossing it on the ground. Now, there are several breaches of protocol in this scene. We actually mm-hmm. talked about this way, way back in our Hoffenkel saga episode. In every aspect of what he's doing, Berg is just being deliberately provocative here. Right, and that's not lost on his audience. Uh, a woman in Thorstein's group sneers that Berg is an outrageous show-off. Uh, later, when Thorstein is told about the incident... He says that the man must be a fool, a crook, or a formidable and arrogant man. Well, Berg's at least two of those. Yes. <laughs> Later, when bad weather makes crossing the Vatensdal River difficult for guests on their way to a wedding, Berg decides to carry people across the river, showing off his strength, mm-hmm. but also freezing his clothes solid in the process. Right. Now, that would just be another harmless bit of showing off, which is kind of his defining characteristic. Except that when, when he gets to the wedding celebration, he pushes his way through the crowd to get to a fire and warm up. Uh, in doing so, he knocks into Thorstein Ingemundersen and nearly pushes him into a fire. Well, Thorstein was hogging the fire, I guess. Uh, it doesn't matter. You know there's no way a site like that can be allowed to stay. Well, especially not when Yokel sees the whole thing. And Yokel mm-hmm. responds the same way that you'd expect him to. He pulls out the sword, Atatangi, and hits Berg so hard with the hilt that he falls on his face. Now, Berg yes. and Yokel draw their swords. I guess Yokel already had his out. But right. the crowd holds them apart from each other. There's a real sense at this point that these two were just waiting for an excuse to have at each other. Right. Now, as the de facto chieftain in the room, Thorstein tries to keep the peace. He apologizes for his brother's temper and offers to compensate Berg for Yokel's behavior. Uh, but Berg says, I'm not short of money and I can take care of the revenge myself. The Ingemundersons leave the wedding so they don't cause any further disruption, but Berg later presses a suit against Yokel for assaulting him. <laughs> I'm trying to recover from Berg's uh, Wild West villain voice. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Um, now, I thought that he didn't want to settle in court. Isn't this supposed to be well, all I don't violence? think he does particularly. Right. No, what he wants is for Yokel to follow an obscure custom and crawl under three arches of raised turf to show deference to mm-hmm. Berg. Yeah, that's right. And Yokel's response is more or less what you'd expect from him again. The trolls will take me before I bow a knee to you in that way. Uh, but his brother Thorstein once again is trying to keep the peace, 
so he offers to undergo the ritual instead. Now, Berg, of course, is delighted by the idea, mm-hmm. but when Thorstein stoops under the first arch, Berg can't help but mouth off and shouts, I've made the top man among the Vatensdal people stoop like a pig. <laughs> stoop like a pig. <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> This is why you can't try to appease someone with a name like Berg the Bold. Thorstein should have let Yokel kill him at the wedding. That's my thought. Well, right. Uh, and Thorstein has finally had enough, and he now cancels the ritual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now everybody gets up in arms. Uh, Finbogi the Mighty challenges Thorstein to a duel. Berg challenges Yokel to a duel. Yokel challenges Berg and Thor- and Finbogi to duels. And everybody storms off in a rage. The duels are set for a week later, and they'll all to be held at the edge of Finbogi's property. So now the fertilizers hit the fan. But uh, mm-hmm. when Berg and Finbogi get home that night, Berg's mistress, Helga the Prophetess, warns them that she doesn't see them winning the duel because Thorstein is a proven man with both intelligence and luck. While no man is the equal of Yokel in berserk fury anywhere in the northern quarter of Iceland. They're quite a team, aren't they? Uh, but there's no backing out for Berg and Finbogi now. And so they agree to Helga's plan to summon a storm of such power that the brothers won't be able to travel to the agreed-on site for the duels. Right. And with the storm raging for days leading up to the duel, everyone's sure that the duel can't happen. Everyone, that is, except Jokul and Thorstein. Jokul's either mm-hmm. too dumb or too awesome to stay home. I prefer the latter. <laughs> uh, and so yeah. he shows up at Thorstein's farm ready to hike to the dueling site. Uh, Thorstein's actually even a little surprised to see Yokel mm-hmm. at his door, but he's game. Uh, the two brothers sort of egg each other on. It, uh, it almost seems at times like that they're the, they're one another's best competition in the right. region. Right? They're kind of constantly measuring themselves against one another. Uh, and both of them agree that Yokel is in charge of this expedition. Uh, so he decides that they're going to collect their brother Thorir and Yokel's friend Foxybrand. Yeah, and it, it's hardly a, an easy trip. They only manage to mm-hmm. reach the dueling site with the help of Bran's horse, Freyfaxi, who pulls a sled for them through yeah. the storm. Freyfaxi? Yeah, Freyfaxi. It's not the one from Hrofenkel's uh-huh. saga, obviously, as far as... Right, but well, we know, know what happened to that one. <laughs> this is another horse with the same name. Uh, Bran's, uh, he's just another Frey worshiper, and he's got a nice horse that's okay. quite powerful. Right, right. Um, so they make it to Finbogi's property, but no one else is there. Uh, everyone, including Berg and Finbogi, stay home out of the storm. And so the brothers win by default. Well, I mean, yeah, but obviously they have to be able to prove that they were there. This sounds like a situation that calls for a scorn pole. And fortunately, <laughs> Yokel knows exactly how to carve one. He kills one of... You do love a good scorn pole, yeah, don't you? He kills one of Finbogi's mares to add a mare's heart to the curse on the pole. Nice. Yeah. Not necessarily animal-friendly, but nice. And once word gets around about the scorn pole, Finbogi and Berg are the laughingstocks of the North. Right. Now, there's another confrontation between the two sides shortly after this, when Finbogi and Berg ride to Vatensdal with 30 men to try and catch their brothers by surprise. So they're just set on murder right now. Right. Right. Well, they might be. Uh, but Thorstein has heard of their plans, and so he rides out to meet them with 60 men, including his mm-hmm. brothers. Uh, this time, Thorstein's in charge of the group. As Yokel says, oh, I wasn't to be expected that you'd want my plans to prevail for long. Which, I mean, given that Thorstein's the only non-berserk among the remaining brothers, it's probably a good idea to leave him in charge. <laughs> now, the, well, don't forget Smid. He's not a berserker. He's not around anymore. <laughs> now, the confrontation between these groups is pretty good. Thorstein demands mm-hmm. to know Finbogi's business in the valley, and knowing he's outnumbered, Finbogi's forced to mumble an excuse. There are often small errands to be done around the countryside. 
with 30 armed men at his back. That's quite yeah. an errand. Well, he's kind of stuck and both sides know it. Thorstein scornfully dismisses them, issuing a self-judgment, which awards nothing to Finbogi's people and banishes both Finbogi and Berg from the Northern District. Right. Uh, now, the brothers are all getting older by this time. Uh, we should say that's the that's the end of uh, Berg and Finbogi. It just kind of ends with that, doesn't it? Uh, Finbogi yeah, they just and Berg go away. Point. Yeah. Um, so while the brothers are getting older, there's still a couple more stories to tell before we let them go. Uh, Thorir, the youngest of the three remaining brothers, has really been struggling with his berserk rages. That's right. This is a problem that comes up periodically in the sagas. Some berserks seem mm-hmm. to have a good handle on their anger. Yokel, for example, doesn't seem to run into any trouble, usually. True. Um, but Thorir usually. is the other kind. He says that mm-hmm. a berserk fury always comes over me when I least want it to. Now, is that your merchant voice? Well, that's my kind of meek merchant Thorir doesn't want to be a berserker. Fair enough. Um, now, we haven't really gone into detail about the whole berserk tradition, and it's not really something to cover right now since it's only tangentially related to the story. Um, uh, no, but we should address the popular image of berserks. Uh, modern people tend to imagine that berserks went into religious ecstasies or took drugs or self-hypnotized before becoming like these whirling dervishes on the battlefield. Uh, the saga reality is frequently closer to Thorir's situation. It's it's almost like berserkerdom is a kind of slightly embarrassing personality disorder <laughs> that ends up having a positive side when it comes time to fight. And even then, it comes with some unfortunate side effects. Uh, in Thorir's right. case, it is affecting his reputation and his personal relationships. Um, I imagine as a merchant, it's not helpful to go into a berserk's fit right. <laughs> uh, when you're trying to make some money. Now, fortunately, his brother Thorstein has a solution for him. Yeah, and I'm really excited about this part. Uh, well, just hang on until I explain it. Thorstein knows about an unfolding scandal in the family. The brother's sister Thordis has a son named Thorgrim of Karnsa, and Thorgrim's a married man who's been, well, let's just say less than entirely faithful to his marriage bed. <laughs> He's been ordering side dishes off the menu is what you're saying? <laughs> I don't know what that means, but okay. <laughs> of course not. You're a happily That's married right. man. Anyway. He's now been presented with a baby boy by his mistress, and his wife refuses to allow the child into her house. And so the child's Mm. just been left for dead in the wild. Now, we've covered the exposure of infants before. It uh, it came up in Gunlag's saga, for example, when Helga the Fair is exposed by her father after a prophecy is made that she's destined to cause the death of two good Mm -hmm. men. Now, essentially what it means is that the baby is being left outdoors to die from the elements. Or wild animals, you would think. Well, that depends, right? I mean, in some cases, probably. Uh, but often the babies are hidden in protected spots so that animals can't get at them. Now, presumably the hope was that an exposed child would die of hypothermia, which was and is generally thought of as a relatively painless death. <laughs> it's still pretty horrible. I, I mean, we've talked about the difficulty of deciding mm-hmm. which children to try to save in a hard winter, but exposure still sounds cruel to modern ears. Well... I mean, I meant relatively painless, but yes, it's awful. I mean, it's uh, exposure of infants is one of those things that probably wasn't yeah. common, but it's occasionally brought into the sagas in a fairly matter-of-fact way, so it wasn't unknown either. Uh, although we have to say that it's usually a plot mm-hmm. device, right? The child in saga stories is then found or rescued right. by someone. Uh, but of course, the ones that weren't rescued wouldn't have been seen as being especially important to a saga story, So those more likely just aren't mentioned. Well, now that we're all thoroughly depressed by this conversation, Mm. I can tell you that this particular exposure has a happy ending. Thorstein and Thorir rescue the infant who has been scratching at the fabric that's covering his face. Right. Now, this may be starting to sound familiar to our regular listeners. That's right. This baby is none other than Thorkel Scratcher. 
Hey! I almost took him as a Thingman, I seem to remember. That's right. And maybe I'll redeem myself now. Yeah, you have another chance. Thorir takes him and raises him. And as Thorstein predicted, Thorir's newfound responsibility calms him down, and he never has another Berserk attack. It's quite miraculous. Which... It's actually kind of sweet. Yeah. It's surprisingly heartwarming. Um, I don't think we mentioned that uh, Thorstein promises to pray to the god who made the sun um, in order to, to right. free him of this berserk rage if he goes and saves uh, young Thorkel. Um, and it does come true. Right. So there's a religious element there as well. Right. Although it's very clear later on in the saga that by the god who made the sun, he means Odin, yeah. not That's god. Right. Right, not the, not the Christian God. Although that said, there's tons of Christian undertones throughout this whole story. Sure, absolutely. Anyway, by this time, the brothers are much older, and we really are going to be moving into another generation soon. Um, but we'll be getting back to Thorkel Scratcher again later in the saga. Right now, it is it's uh we're, we're getting there. But Thorstein asks Thorir to pay a price for his help. Uh, Thorstein wants the full rights to the family's Godorth. That's not really as heartwarming. <laughs> No. no, this is actually kind it's of mercenary. a little manipulative. Uh, but Thorstein's mm-hmm. been serving as Gothi for the Vatnsdal region for a while now in his brother's stead, and he wants to pass the position on to his own sons when he retires or dies. And anyway, Thorir is glad to be rid of the responsibility. The result of all this is that the family's power is being reconstituted under Thorstein. And it's it's not long uh, after this that the three remaining brothers die of old age and related ailments, with Jokul dying first and Thorir dying last. All three of them actually die right around the same time, and there's not a lot of time spent on their declines and deaths. First of all, it's a little unusual for a saga clan with so many guys dying of old age. Um, and second of all, it's it's weird that they only their, their deaths are just mentioned in like two lines as we transition mm-hmm. to a new generation. Yeah, right, exactly. I mean, so far in four generations with eight total major male figures, we've only had two deaths by violence. Yeah. And Hogni was the only one not to die as an old man. Pretty good going so far. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think I want to talk about, you know, when we get to the judgment section about why I think that might be the case. Um, but we'll keep mm-hmm. going here. Um, yeah. The next generation's coming up and it's got a bit of a troublemaker in it. So let's see if we can't get some family blood flowing. <laughs> generation five, Ingolf and Goodman Thorstensen. Alright, so this generation is a little easier to keep track of. There are various cousins and so forth, but the important ones are the sons of Thorstein. He has two sons. The older son is Ingolf, and the younger is named Gudbrand. Uh, they're both considered good-looking men, but Ingolf is exceptionally handsome. Exceptionally mm-hmm. handsome. Yes, we have mentioned Ingolf before and seen him get into a little bit of trouble, mm-hmm. and we will see him again in other sagas. Uh, you you might remember he appeared in Halford's saga, Troublesome Poet, where his reputation is established in a verse which is actually repeated in this saga. All the grown-up girls long to go with Ingolf. <laughs> <laughs> Glum forever was the one too young. Ah, yes. So this guy is essentially the Don Juan of Iceland. Yes, more or less he is. <laughs> He's also briefly mentioned in uh, Flostala Saga as being one of the group of four men in his age who are so good-looking that the young women of Iceland are said to lose their minds if they got too close oh. to him. Well, uh, Ingolf's <laughs> early career seems to bear that out. Uh, as yes. a young man, when his father and uncles are still alive, there was a, an incident with a neighbor. And uh, given what we were just talking <laughs> so, about, can you remember who the neighbor is? Oh, yes, I can. Uh, Ingolf was flirting with Valgerd Otar's mm-hmm. daughter, uh, who's the sister of Halford, troublesome poet, and Galti Otterson. Well done! Ten points to Gryffindor. 
Yes. I was actually just re-listening to uh, to Halford Troublesome Poet uh, because I wanted to remember all the stuff mm-hmm. about Otar and Well, there's so much overlap what with what we're there. talking about here. Um, yeah. So, uh, Valgard's father, Otar, wasn't happy about Ingolf's attentions to Valgard, so he had a word with Ingolf's father, Thorstein, who had a word with Ingolf. And before we get into mm-hmm. that, did you say 10 points to Gryffindor? I did, yes. Oh I'm actually drinking out of a – because we're actually recording this in the morning, I'm drinking out of my coffee mug, which is a Hogwarts mug that was given to me almost 15 years ago um, by a grad school friend uh, before I had ever read a single Harry Potter story. Uh, but it stuck with right, me. That's right. good. And it's actually become now you know, I- some, a running gag with my students that I'll, I'll give points to Gryffindor or points to Slytherin if uh, if one of them gets something right. Oh, you're, you're very, very hip. Oh, yes, I am. That's what I am. Uh, okay. Now you could uh, you could be drinking out of a Saga Thing mug if you wanted. I to. I could actually. I, I have, well, I have a uh, Saga Thing beer mug, but it's uh, it's a little early in the morning for that. I'm just trying to plug the the the, the place. You know, <laughs> just go Saga Thing dot Spreadshirt dot com, mm-hmm. and and you can get your own stuff. Uh, follow a link on our webpage. Any right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> So the, the sort of communication chains that you were just talking about, they actually aren't that uncommon. Right. It, it's really a smart idea to avoid directly confronting someone about something that is sensitive uh, since the situation can escalate quickly if everyone feels they've got too much honor at stake. So yeah, you definitely. Gotta be very, very, uh, very careful. Yes, absolutely. So so Ingolf agreed to stop seeing Volgard, but then sure he wrote he some verses about her, which unfortunately got around. So Autar summoned Ingolf to court, but Ingolf's uncle Jokel of course, wasn't going to stand for his nephew to be hauled into court. No. And as he put it, Oh, we are not well-versed in the law, but we could render this case void with our axe hammers. I love it. That <laughs> has to be in contention for best witticism. Fair enough. Uh, anyway, that's that's actually more or less what ends up happening. Uh, Yokel and Ingolf mounted an aggressive defense in the case, by which I mean they broke up the court by storming in and wrecking the place, and the case collapsed. Right. We're starting to see some hints that the Vatensdahl family might be growing a little arrogant. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. No, a little and, bit more dysfunctional. Yeah. And we're seeing also, I think, some of that cynicism about the law's effectiveness that sometimes crops up in the sagas. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no real surprise that the Vatensdahlers behave the way they do. And there's no suggestion that their behavior is especially unacceptable. But that doesn't mean that people approve of their actions either. Mm-hmm. It just means that they don't feel able to stand up to a powerful family over a relatively minor case. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one's died here. Right. Otter just doesn't like Ingolf hitting on his daughter. Well, although that sort of thing can be quite serious, right? And Ingolf's verses about Volgard clearly put him in the wrong legally. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think the cultural critique is present anyway. Right? The whole point of the law is supposed to be its equal application. And obviously, that's more of an ideal than a reality in nearly any culture. But its failure in Iceland was bitterly resented by those who felt themselves threatened by their overpowerful neighbors. Well, in this case, Ingolf did get away with it. Yes. And now, with his father and uncles having died, he's the new Gothi, and he's the head of the family. Mm-hmm. He marries Haldis, the daughter of Olaf of Haukagil, and he continues to see Valgard whenever he gets the chance. Uh, we should make clear here that Valgard seems to be into Ingolf as well. She certainly seems to be. Her major hobby is apparently making fancy clothes for him to wear, but her <laughs> father still doesn't like the relationship, and he decides to do something about it. Right. So Otar finds an outlaw named Thorir one day and offers him a place to stay in exchange for the outlaw making an attempt on the lives of either Ingolf or his brother Gudbrand. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorir accepts and immediately sets out for Ingolf's farm. 
is it a little strange that Otter would just assign the job to a random stranger? I mean, <laughs> granted, he's an outlaw, but all he has to do is mention who sent him and Otter's going to be in some serious trouble. Oh, agreed. Uh, but we do see this scenario so often in the sagas that we're apparently meant to take it at face value. Yeah. Right? Well, the Air Biggie saga, we saw that right. a bunch. Right. right. And I mean, you know, Nyal saga turns on a series of these. Mm-hmm. Uh, according to the saga authors, there's more or less an unlimited supply of unscrupulous killers for hire wandering around in Iceland in the 10th century. Well, Otter isn't exactly sending a master of the assassin's art on this mission. <laughs> I mean, Thorir, the outlaw's plan, is basically to walk up to Ingolf's door and claim to be an outlaw in need of shelter. But Which is exactly what he is, so points for honesty. Yeah. Well, he's hiding in plain sight, I guess. <laughs> but he's not a stealthy genius of deception. Uh, <laughs> no, he's not. Quite reasonably, Ingolf takes one look at this guy and slams the door in his face. Uh, but his brother, Gudbrand, is more soft-hearted, and he decides to take Thorir into his home. I'm sorry, did you say soft-hearted or soft-headed? Yeah, I know. This is going to turn out to be a weakness of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, predictably, Thorir takes this first opportunity to make an attempt on Gudbrand's life. Mm-hmm. But Gudbrand ducks the blow, chases Thorir into a nearby riverbed, and throws a sword into Thorir's belly, killing him. He throws the sword. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, it's a little different from the usual spear throwing we're used to. Uh, mm-hmm. But it's I can't imagine how hard it must be to throw a sword. You know, the balance on it and everything. So yeah. so hard that you can get it through somebody. But it's it's an undeniably effective method and Thorir is killed on the spot. Mm-hmm. Then uh, Gudbrand kicks a little dirt over the corpse in order to technically fulfill the requirements, making this a killing rather than a murder. Not a glorious ending for young Thorir. But on the other hand, the brothers don't get much justice for the assassination attempt at all. Mm -hmm. Otter denies everything, and the lack of evidence saves him from legal judgment. Well, presumably that's the advantage of subcontracting this kind of work. Oh, yeah. And Otter's going to try it again. Mm -hmm. Work once, probably work again. This time he finds a strong (laughs) Hebridean sailor whose name is Svart. Mm -hmm. In some ways, this is just a repeat of the last attempt. Otter offers shelter and friendship in exchange for Svart trying to kill either of the brothers, and Svart agrees travels to Hoff, where he tries to convince Ingolf to take him in. Ingolf doesn't like the look of him and escorts him off the property. Then Svart travels to Gudbrand, who takes him in. So this is exactly the same story again. Pretty much, yeah. Hmm. But Svart is slightly more intelligent than Thor the outlaw, and he spends an entire winter with Gudbrand to lull him into a sense of security and trust. Oh, I don't like where this is going. So in the spring, Gudbrand and Svart are out riding one day, sharing a single horse... I guess they got very close. Yes. Uh, when they came to a marshy area, Svart slides off the back of the horse, and there's a woman traveling with them mm-hmm. who sees what's going on. She shouts out a warning to Goodbrand, but as Goodbrand turns around, Svart impales him with a spear sideways through the torso. Oh, poor Goodbrand. You know, yeah. we see a lot of these assassination attempts in the saga, in the sagas, but they they fail more often than they succeed. Yeah, they do. Uh, Goodbrand is just a little too trusting. And the tragedy here is the sort that gets critiqued even in the contemporary literature. He dies as a target of convenience in a feud that his brother provokes with an overprotective father. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think at moments like this, we're actually meant to see this as a senseless waste of a promising young man. It, well, it's worth noting that even with a spear through him, Guthbrand does manage to draw his own sword and mm-hmm. slash Svart to death before falling. Mm. So he's still a pretty impressive guy. We just don't get to know him very well. Yeah. Um, and there's a settlement made over the killing, but... Ingolf is forced to accept a lesser settlement because he's violated an earlier agreement forbidding him from seeing Valgert. And that's the end of their feud. Again, I think we're meant to feel a shift in how feuds are socially judged at around this point in the saga. 
Right. And this is uh, what sets Otter um, moving from the district and into the district where um, or where, where Halford will end up meeting his love. Absolutely. And then he'll leave and go fall in love with uh, King Olaf, et cetera, right. et cetera, et cetera. Right. <laughs> um, but for now, we've got to get back to more violence and Ingolf's attempts to organize this uh, district. Okay. So uh, Ingolf's next task is to try and wipe out a scourge of outlaws that threaten to overwhelm Iceland's system of locally organized self-policing. That uh, sounds Ing- big. I know. Uh, Ingolf rides out with 14 other men to track down a particularly brazen group of criminals, and after splitting from the group to chase a different set of tracks, he finds a large group of outlaws holed up in a shed. Uh, instead of waiting for more men to help him, Ingolf and a single companion want to charge in. Well, Ingolf wants to charge in. <laughs> His companion seems to like the idea of going to get more help, but he decides he can't leave Ingolf alone. Right, no, that's fair. Um... Meanwhile, Ingolf is tying flat stones to his chest and back as a kind of Flintstones armor. (laughs) You'd think that he'd have brought some actual protection along, but I guess you can't beat giant rocks for stopping power. Right. So Ingolf Rockchest and his friend Red Shirt Companion charge (laughs) into the shed where they find 18 outlaws. It's a lot of outlaws. Uh Uh, The outlaws' blows mostly glance off Ingolf's rock armor, and he's wielding the family sword Atatangi, so he manages to kill five outlaws before being seriously wounded. Oh, and his companion, unsurprisingly, is killed. That's a great brawl. Mm-hmm. And we'll address it again in Best Bloodshed. At one point, Ingolf kills two men with a single sword blow. One of them is standing behind him. <laughs> it's it's really great stuff. <laughs> but, uh, but for now, Ingolf's injuries keep him in bed for the winter and his wounds slowly heal. But as spring begins, the scar tissue opens up again and poor handsome Ingolf bleeds to death from his wounds. Months after the battle. Now, I'm I'm curious as to how you read that part of the story because I've got a theory here. Uh, well, I guess there's a couple of possibilities, but I'm going to be honest. I haven't really thought about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to guess you want to talk about scurvy or something like that. Yes, exactly. I think that what's being described here is a man who's in bed all winter, getting very little sun, probably no fresh fruits or vegetables, uh, relatively little uncooked or solid food. Uh, just as the sun returns, Ingolf's vitamin levels reach critical lows, and his separating wounds lead to his death. Now, the question is whether um, whether or not scurvy would be likely in Ingolf's mm-hmm. case. I mean, there's probably ample meat available, right? True, and it, it is possible to avoid scurvy by eating meat from animals that produce most of their own vitamin C, which includes most Arctic animals. Mm-hmm. Um, but the symptoms still sound enough like scurvy that it seems like the likeliest culprit to me. Hmm. Well, I guess maybe we need to do more looking into diet and so forth to get and get back to that. <laughs> yeah, get back, get into that. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure I will. I never expected a digression on scurvy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always just assumed that his wound didn't completely heal. Mm-hmm. It opened up and his guts spilled out. The end. Mm-hmm. Well, we do get these occasionally. Remember uh, in Gizli Saga, there was a man who was wounded by Gizli who spends a year in bed and then dies of his wounds. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, for now we have to get. Uh, for now, we have to bury the last of the Thorstein sons, Aww. and Ingolf's burial has one last bit of scandal that I really, I, I really like. Makes me really like the guy. <laughs> you mean the burial site? Absolutely, I mean uh-huh. the burial site. See, here's the thing: Ingolf asks to be buried on a different hill from his ancestors in order to be closer to the passing road, because, as the saga says, the girls of Vatnsdal would remember him better. If his grave were close to the road. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Nothing says classy like trying to score a little attention with the ladies from beyond the grave. I agree. Uh, <laughs> but now we have a problem. Right. Um, so Ingolf has two sons with his wife, uh, Sert and Hogni. 
but they're way too young to become Gothar. Right. Uh, for the first time now, we've got a power vacuum with a number of candidates who want to take control of the region. Fortunately, the Vatans dollars have another potential Gothi being raised in the wings. Generation 6, Thorkel Scratcher. Scratcher. <laughs> See? I said we'd get back to him. Sure, but we should probably clear up Thorkel's connection to the last generation a little bit. Okay, um, so briefly, uh, Thorkel is the son of Thorgrim, who is the son of Thordis Ing- Ingemund's daughter. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Give everybody a chance to get their pen and papers. They can map this out. <laughs> uh, all right. Everybody got your pen and paper? Ready. Thorkel is the son of Thorgrim, who is the son of Thordis Ingemund's daughter. Okay. Right. She was the sister of Thorstein and Jokel and all that crowd. Okay, so they are important. Right. So he's a second cousin of Surt and Hogni Ingolfsson. Uh, but the important point for this saga is that he's also a descendant of Kettle the Large, Thorstein Kettleson, and Ingemann Thorstenson, right, from our first episode. Gotcha. So we're still in the same bloodline, and he's the sixth generation of the family to be covered. Right, but unlike the previous generations, he's not going to immediately become a Gothi. Mm-hmm. In, in fact, his first major task in the saga is to secure the chieftaincy for his father, Thorgrim, or maybe well, his first task is to even get his father to acknowledge him. Right, so it's, right, so Thorgrim is his birth father. Remember, he was adopted by his great uncle Thor Goatthai for a while. And well, that's actually a problem. So you see, because mm-hmm. Thorgrim hasn't ever publicly acknowledged his relationship with Thorkel, um, but at a gathering where several men are throwing their hats in the ring to take over the Goldorth at Vatnsdal, Thorgrim and Thorkel are both in attendance. Right, but they're not there together because it can be so awkward to travel with the illegitimate teenage son you tried to kill by exposure as a newborn. Oh, right. So you lived then. Well done, lad. Shut up, old man. You're such a jerk. I wish I'd never been born. Uh, Well, yeah, me too. Was I not clear about that? Arg. (laughs) I guess it's a tricky conversation. Yeah, it would be. Anyway, Thorgrim, as a first cousin of Ingolf, is putting himself forward for the chieftaincy. Mm -hmm. We we also might meet some other candidates, including Thorkel Silver, who's a shapeshifter. A witch and an unpopular but worthy man, and we get acquainted with Thorgrim's father, Klaka Orm, who's hosting the gathering. The mm-hmm. decision is going to be made by choosing lots, since several men think that they're worthy and there's no clear frontrunner. Right. Now, choosing by lots benefits Thorkel Silver, who can use his magic to influence the outcome. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Thorgrim seeks out his estranged son and finds him playing with other kids. Uh, Thorkel Scratcher sees him and stares him down, saying that it's no great thrill. To be looking at Thorgrim. Yeah, that'll be in notable witticisms. I mean, you gotta love a kid that has this kind of moxie. Yeah, uh, Thorgrim certainly likes the kid's potential mm-hmm. and offers to acknowledge him officially if Thorgrim will do him a small favor. Bury an axe in Thorkel Silver's head. Oh, that's a small favor in front of well, everybody? Well, it's a small axe. <laughs> I see. Well, this is one of those strange moments in the saga. Uh, we've already been told that Thorkel Silver is a worthy man and people who kill in exchange for favors are generally held in contempt in this saga and in others. But mm-hmm. the author doesn't seem to be treating Thorkel Scratcher with contempt here. Not at all. Um, and yet, I'd say there's a lot to be cynical about in Scratcher's behavior. Um, he even rejects his father's plan of killing Silver before the lots are cast mm-hmm. and waits until Silver has been named chieftain, presumably so that his own deed of killing him will be more impressive. It is a curious moment. Scratcher brushes against Silver in the main room of Clocka Orm's house. Silver shoves him aside and calls him a slave son. Then Scratcher takes advantage of the moment to strike a single axe blow that kills Silver on the spot. Right, but I don't know how we're not supposed to think that Scratcher's being a little cold when he then says that he hadn't had to do too much to acquire the axe. 
Well, I, he gets away with it anyway. Mm-hmm. Thorgrim immediately tells those present that Scratcher was provoked into the killing, and he pays compensation. Uh, he pays a compensation package to Silver's family. So Thorgrim gets to be chieftain now. Well, yeah, his son is still cleaning blood from the last challenger off of his axe. Right? <laughs> Are you bold enough to claim the job at that moment? Um, I suppose it depends on whether I'm wearing the patented Ingolf Stone Age armor. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, put it right in your head. <laughs> Uh, so, so now for the first time, our story splits off from the main part of the family and follows Thorkel Scratcher as he begins a career as a traveler abroad. Mm-hmm. He joins the retinue of Earl Sigurth of the Orkneys, who's actually distantly related to him through his mother's side. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's a really a little bit confusing, I thought. Yeah. I don't know what the relationship is exactly. Yeah, the short version is that it's not clear. They're just related. Um, and I actually looked at Orkney and Gasaga to try to figure this out, and there's nothing in there about it. Mm. Um, once Sigurd knows about the relationship, he sends money to Iceland with Thorkel to buy his mother's freedom and provide her with a wardrobe fit for an earl's relative. But as far as I can tell, that's all we learn about their link in this saga. Mm. It's probably fair to say that this story begins to fray a bit toward the end in terms of narrative cohesion, and this sort of thing is indicative of that. Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, we're doing our best from here on out, people, but it's it's a tough saga to explain for its last dozen pages or so. It still reads well, I think. I think uh, so. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't until we were trying to figure out how to discuss it that we really hit up against just how tenuous the narrative threads are. That's a nice way of saying that it barely makes sense, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it kind of makes sense. Uh, yeah, it does. Uh, I think it relies on its audience already knowing something of the stories that are being told. And so it's shortcutting a lot of the exposition that would normally go into providing us with a context for events. And, and that's really saying something. Minimalism in exposition is kind of the saga's stock and trade. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but let's get back to this. So Thorkel's time with Earl Sigurd is exciting, and he's very successful. Um, at one point, he goes raiding in Scotland with Sigurd's troop and disappears at the end of the battle when everybody else is returning to their ships. Now, the Earl's other men are all kind of jealous of Thorkel's relationship with Sigurd, and so nobody wants to go looking for him. But the Earl insists, and so they all return to land. Right, and what they find there is pretty epic. Mm-hmm. Thorkel has his back pressed against an oak tree, and he's fighting off two men while four more lie dead at his feet. Yeah, this is a really nice bit of dramatic tension, and I think it shows a saga writer who really knows his game. Uh, keeping us in the dark about where Thorkel is and why, and then this dramatic reveal of his desperate fight is good stuff. Oh, definitely. And it turns out that Thorkel found a cache of treasure conveniently in a secret hole in the wall of a castle they'd been attacking, and he had been jumped by the castle defenders to keep him from gaining the treasure. Mm-hmm. Sigurd announces that Thorkel's findings are his alone and not to be shared with anyone else. Um, but Thorkel insists on at least splitting it with the Earl himself. How noble of him. Well, it's noble, but it's not going to do much for Thorkel's popularity with the group. No, it's not. But that's all right, since Thorkel soon after returns to Iceland to free his mother. Right. Uh, we've got a real, like, Shmee and Anakin moment here, don't we? Um, I don't know what that means, and I don't want to know what that means. It's a Star Wars thing. But I don't want to know. You kids today. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, shortly after his return, uh, Thorkel's father Thorgrim dies. And now Thorkel gets to be chieftain, right? Uh, not exactly. Uh, Thorgrim's legitimate sons inherit his estate and title, so Thorkel is out of luck again, and he moves now to live with his great-uncle Thororm. Uh, this story gets a little more complicated than it has to, but we can do this as a brief run-through. 
Thorkel is generally a pretty laid-back guy, apart from occasionally taking out a contract hit on his father's <laughs> rivals. Yeah, uh, he's he's also, he's fairly humble. I mean, he even pitches in with food preparation for a wedding for his young aunt Sigrid, mm-hmm. and does a lot of work that most fighting men would consider beneath them. Uh, and they definitely do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when a few guests at the wedding start mocking him for helping with the slaughtering of piglets for the feast, he shrugs it off at first. Mm-hmm. But there's one man named Gladir, who's a cousin of the groom, that keeps pushing him and calling him a swineherd, a, a bitch, and a slave woman's son. See, that last one is the one that's most likely to drive Thorkel nuts. Yeah. Especially because it's no longer true. Right? His mother's kinship to the Orkney Earls has been recognized and she's been freed. That's right. But this is an example of the tenacity of reputation in the sagas. Right? In the same way that Snorri Gothi was haunted his entire life by that unfair accusation that he'd failed to avenge his father, there's going to be a certain kind of person who will always think of Thorkel as a slave woman's son. And it's important to note that this really is a mindset. The impression I get is that Gladir is really just a bully and a jerk. He mm-hmm. seems like he's trying to provoke a fight, but he's all hot air. Well, and that's unfortunate for him because Thorkel still got an axe. And one day when Gladir has been razzing him again, Thorkel gets his axe and hacks Gladir in the head by the entrance to Klaka Orm's hole. <laughs> Gladir nice. uh, surprisingly dies instantly. <laughs> right. <laughs> the place goes into an uproar. There's an exciting chase scene through the hall after this with Thorkel jumping over benches and tumbling between the men who are trying to seize him. Then mm-hmm. Thorkel escapes with the help of some uh, women in the hall. Uh, they pretend that he's hiding among them while he escapes through a side door. Right, there's a fairly awesome moment here when an older woman named Hild grabs an axe and threatens to kill the first man who tries to get past her. You're uh, you're left with the impression that the ladies all love Thorkel. Or that they really hated Gladir. Right, no, true, he's, he's pretty obnoxious. Thorkel's family now seeks a settlement with Gladir's family while Thorkel hides in a cave. But they insist on seeking blood vengeance or outlawry instead. Mm. They get their relative, the famous lawyer and chieftain Goodman the Powerful, to prosecute the case. So Thorkel and his great-uncle Thororm enlist the help of a witchy woman named Thordis the Prophetess, who tries various schemes to help uh, them. I'm sorry, uh, did you say witchy woman? Witchy Was that an eagle's woman. reference? I thought uh, we agreed that I was the old guy around here. <laughs> Look, the classics aren't for one generation. They're for all time. <laughs> now I'm going to have witchy woman in the background of my head for the rest of this episode. Yeah. Anyway, Thordis tries a few things, and the one that finally works is to have Thorkel in disguise tap Goodman the Powerful on the cheek three times with a staff, which somehow lays a spell on him that muddles his <laughs> mind so that he cannot prosecute the case successfully. Instead, he accepts a relatively minor amount of silver in compensation, and the case is concluded. Right. Now, the Vatensdal family moves quickly to secure Thorkel's position in the community before kind of everybody's able to figure out that they played a trick. Uh, they find him a wife and give him the chieftaincy, since Ingolf's sons are still too young to take it over. Uh, Thorgal's doing all right for himself. Yeah, and the rest of the saga is mainly concerned with establishing his worthiness to follow in the footsteps of his ancestors. Yeah, it's not subtle about it either. We're uh, no. we're told that Thorkel was a man most like the old Vatensdal men, such as Ingemund and Thorstein. Those are some big words. Mm-hmm. I mean, the saga really goes out of its way to pump these two up. Actually, it it says he's even better than those men because he ends up converting to Christianity by the end of the saga. Oh, good for him. But hang on, we're not quite there yet. The mm-hmm. last chapters tell the story of the three tests of Thorkel's medal. Oh, you spotted that too? Yeah. Of um, yeah, the humble origins, uh, the challenge to his worth from Gladir, and now a series of challenges that allow him to prove his strength and wisdom. There's a real Bildungsroman element to Thorkel's story, and now we're almost veering into heroic monomyth territory. 
You got to throw this language out here. Could you have to say buildings, Roman? You couldn't just what? say coming of age story? Okay. Coming of age story. Thank you very much. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> so the first of the three challenges is sorting out a feud that nearly erupts after a killing at the Vatnsdale Assembly when Hermund Avaldison kills Galti Otterson. Oh, is that uh, Hermund Avaldison? Avaldison! Avaldi. Now, we uh, we saw the same killing in a very different light in Halford's Saga. Mm-hmm. Galti, some of you may recall, is Halford's brother, and in Halford's Saga, he was killed by Brand, brother of Kolfina. Right. Uh, I think this is the first time we've run into one of these situations. We've got two sagas telling the same story and disagreeing on some of the most important elements. Mm-hmm. So, in this saga... Galti is killed by Hermund of Aldison, uh, who's still a brother of Kolfina, by the way. And in this saga, the killing is set up as part of a much longer standing issue. Galti Alterson is the brother of Valgerd, the daughter of Altar, who Ingolf had been wooing. Right. So Galti's father is the same Altar who sent an assassin after Thorkel's cousins and had Gudmund killed. Right. And Thorkel's family and Alters were reconciled after the death of Gudbrand, but there's still resentment there. There has to be, right? So, so from Thorkel's perspective, what this is is a test of his high-mindedness and his commitment to being a fair-minded chieftain, right? Will he pursue the killer vigorously when the victim is from a family he has reason to hate? Well, at first, it seems like he will. He leaps up and chases Hermund to his family's booth. Right, but it's not Hermund he finds in the doorway. It's Hild, the older woman who covered Thorkel's escape after the murder of Gladier, the woman with the axe. Hild, it turns out, is Hermund's mother. Ooh, a little bit awkward. Yeah, pretty damned awkward, yes. Uh, mm-hmm. So now Thorkel is confronted with a woman he probably owes his life to, but if he lets her son go, he risks reigniting a feud with Ottar's family, and he risks looking petty and weak as a new chieftain. Right. It's a nice problem, and it's done really subtly in the text. Yeah. And Thorkel's solution makes for a really clever moment. Mm-hmm. In Halford's saga, Thorkel Scratcher and Halford allow the women to leave the booth. And Brand escapes in a woman's cloak, angering them both. Mm-hmm. In this version, Thorkel acknowledges his debt to Hild by subtly hinting to her that she should smuggle Hermund out in a woman's cloak. But Halfred doesn't catch on. Right. So in this version, we see that Thorkel is actually conspiring with Hild to save her son and repay his debt right under Halfred's nose. Exactly. So the narratives agree on the action but disagree significantly about the motives and the subtext that underlie the scene. See, I really like that. This I do is exactly too. why reading the sagas as a complete set of texts is so rewarding. The overlapping materials start to create some really great multifaceted storytelling. Mm-hmm, definitely. So Thorkel is able to push for a settlement now, and both sides go home more or less content with the outcome, and so he's passed his first test. Right. Uh, so the second test is probably something we can pass over relatively quickly. Uh, Thorkel has to juggle a group of Christian missionaries and a pair of troublemaking berserks named Hauk and Hauk while navigating the increasing social unrest around whether or not Iceland should convert to Christianity. You did say uh, two berserks who are both named Hauk, right? Uh, yeah, I know. Um, for <laughs> what it's worth, I don't know if we're supposed to believe they even have real names. Uh, they act more like animals. Mm-hmm. The saga author tells us they howled like dogs, gnawed the ends of their shields, and walked barefoot on burning coals. Okay, much more traditional berserks. Right, right. Uh, so Thorkel handles this situation as well as the last. He hints at converting if the Christians can miracle up a solution to the Hauk infestation. Uh, the Christians manage to kill the berserks using a miraculous combination of hot coals and a bunch of men with clubs to beat them to death. Coals and axes. <laughs> mm. 
Uh, I got to say, that's not much of a miracle. Well, in fairness, Thorkel was lying about converting. Oh, okay. Uh, you lie about conversion, you get rotten miracles. <laughs> uh, he, <laughs> he encourages others to take the faith, but he says he'll bide his time. And in fact, he doesn't convert until several years later when the entire island converts to Christianity in 1000 AD. Yeah, the stories that surround the conversion are always so bizarre, and we're mm-hmm. really going to have to uh, get around to a saga brief on the conversion at some point. Yeah, well, we've already been working up the research on it, so we'll get around to it one of these months. <laughs> so for for this one, Thorkel's scene is having handled this situation relatively well, right? Yeah, uh, while well, the berserks are dead and he maintains local peace despite the religious tensions, so yeah, it's pretty successful. Well, good for him. Now, the mm-hmm. third challenge is is a bit more straightforward test of Thorkel's ability as a peacemaker and Gothi. Two pairs of brothers from nearby farms get into a series of disagreements with one another, and these escalate until one of them is killed. The two killers are outlawed, but then refuse to leave and barricade themselves in so that their enemies, led by the surviving brother from the other family, can't really get at them. Yeah, this is more than a little confusing, but I just want to say that it's actually more confusing reading it. Well, as you were saying earlier, I I think this author knows what he's doing. In Mm -hmm. this case, the convolutions of the situation make it a case that will prove the worth of a man who resolves it. Right. And that man is Thorkel Scratcher, law puncher. I guess. It sounds like a good television show. (laughs) He's like the Matlock of medieval Iceland. Right. (laughs) No, I don't like that. (laughs) Thorkel is forced to step in when the surviving brother asks him for help. Thorkel is able to convince the killers to leave the country in compliance with their sentence of outlawry. And then later, he negotiates a settlement between the two families. So there's there's also this subplot involving a slave who keeps finding ways to make money and eventually gets killed. Don't, uh, don't get us sidetracked. Uh, the point <laughs> is that Thorkel is able mess. to bring about a peaceful settlement between important families in his district. And well, really, what more do you want from a chieftain? Right. So Thorkel passes his tests lives a long life as a respected Gothi, and dies of an illness in his old age. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we said, he does convert in 1000 AD, uh, and he's said in the saga's conclusion to have surpassed his ancestors. Pretty impressive. Since he is their equal in stature and luck, and has Christianity to recommend him as well. What a guy. Yeah, what a guy. Right, and we should be clear that we're not skipping over a bunch of other stuff. After the settlement deal is reached in that Brothers in Arms section, the paragraph begins, Thorkel got old. <laughs> we just scored, we, we, we just sort of skip over his actual career. Yeah, um, it's true that the author isn't wasting any time on unnecessary stories, uh, but it does seem like he wraps the whole thing up with almost indecent haste. But he does leave us with a ringing endorsement of Thorkel as a potential thing man. Will either of us agree with this assessment and choose Thorkel Scratcher, the former foundling, as our thing man? Well, we'll see. I almost but, did it uh, before. Not just, well, but not just yet. That's right, you almost did this once before. Uh, this is the end of the summary and initial discussion of Vatnsdala Saga, but we've uh, still got some judging to do. Mm-hmm. So look for part three of this saga to be up on the site soon, uh, when we'll take the Vatnsdala clan to court to decide on best bloodshed, best nickname, worthiest thing man, and so on. In the meantime, check out our Twitter at SagaThingPod, our Facebook SagaThingPodcast, and please subscribe to us on iTunes and review. The best way to promote this uh, podcast and get us out there and to build our reputations <laughs> as good thing men you should be reviewing us on iTunes so thanks for listening we'll be back soon until then keep on reading bye for now keep on reading like we have a, a punchline now. <laughs> a tag here's a tag keep on reading come on guys
Minimalism is... <clears throat> Mornings. Mornings, huh? Mm-hmm. We do this a lot better when we're drinking beer. You do, actually. Coffee and tea aren't helping. <laughs>